This is exactly right. On the 12th season of Tenfold More Wicked, we investigate a series of compelling mysteries from the city of Fall River, Massachusetts, where problems started generations before Lizzie Borden's murders made her a household name. Join me as we cover the misfortunes that have befallen this infamous town for more than 150 years, including the Great Fire of 1843. Season 12 premieres Monday, May 13th on Exactly Right. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome. Welcome to my favorite murder. That's Georgia Hardstar. That's Karen Kilgariff. It should be clear. <laughs> um, everything's the same and everything's different right now with this week. Yes. Name five examples of which one different. <laughs> Whatever you're talking about. <laughs> well, for example, first of all, oh, well, for example, I can name something. We're living in a world now. This is different. We're new episodes of Forensic Files. This sounds like a commercial, but it's not. Right. This is just from the heart. It's from the heart. This is going straight out to you from us. That's right. Forensic Files 2, Electric Boogaloo is out now on HLN. That's right. We are not being paid to do this. We are I not. Think we, we have should. been. No, we have been yes. paid to do it. We've done commercials. We have, but we also, we're living it. As they should pay us. I mean. We're like Kendall Jenner and Pepsi, where we're just living it. <laughs> we're not just talking about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> we are, we are uh, aspirational television. Thank you. Watchers. <sighs> Did you see it? Yeah. How was it? It's good. I think they cut, they trimmed some fat from like the, which I like. I love fat. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. In a good way, though, where it's not like they take you for, you know. Granted? <laughs> Nobody likes when Forensic Files takes you for granted. It was my birthday, Forensic Files. <laughs> you just shit all over it. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you ruin another birthday? You said it'd be different this time around. You said it would be different. You had no examples of how different it was going to be. You said it'd be electric and there'd be a boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> and there's neither. <laughs> wow. We're off to a start. Um... So kind of more concise. Yeah, I'll say that. All right. Confidently. But still doing the same thing. Like when I go to bed tonight, yeah. I can throw that on. Absolutely. And just be <laughs> rocked to sleep. It felt weird watching it on the couch because I feel like I usually watch it in a hotel room. In a nice, big, fat bed. Yeah. And yes. I was almost like, maybe we should get it. I'm really anti-TV and bedroom. And so I was like, maybe we do need one just to watch Forensic Files. I wonder if that's because you read the same feng shui book I did in like 2000. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just makes me sad. Oh, okay. Yeah. Too hospitally? Too like uh dating a guy with a mattress on the floor <laughs> and we have to watch it in his room because his roommates are out or his he lives with his parents, let's say. Sure. You know. It's that scene. He's constantly going, turn it down. My dad's going to get mad. Right. Or he then turns it too loud and falls asleep. But then if you try to turn it off, he's like, I was watching that. I was. Uh, you woke me up. Yeah. That, for some reason, reminds me of the one time... In my terrible 20s, mm-hmm. 
still drinking, so I must... I was under 27, and I would guess I was 25. Okay. I had a party at my house. Terrible age. Terrible. <laughs> Terrible time to be alive. Really difficult, <laughs> especially when you're taking speed. <laughs> Everything's going too fast. And uh, I, we had a party at my house, and I was so kind of wired that I couldn't really get anything done. Yeah. Like, I remember just going in and putting on mascara for literally an hour. Like, yeah. I couldn't... I couldn't do forward right. m- motion. Next, you couldn't do next step. No, yeah. I was like caught up, very nervous, very like who's going to come. And I was excited because yeah. this person was going to be there. And when I went to clean my room, which was like the last thing I did, I just picked up all the clothes on the floor, mm-hmm. which there were plenty because I had a shopping addiction at the time <laughs> to replace my uh, food addiction that mm-hmm. had been sublimated by my speed addiction. You got to you gotta supplement your Okay. Right. If you don't, if you're not working on one actively, yeah. move on to the other ones. There's plenty of substances to abuse. I took all the clothes on my floor, threw them in the closet, mm-hmm. and it made a stack that was literally four feet high of a <laughs> like a solid mass of clothes. Mm. Um, and then I just shut the door. It all smelled like cigarettes too. I'm imagining oh, everything yes. smells like cigarettes. Every, everything smelled like cigarettes. Yeah, or cloves. It was like mid nineties. Yeah. It was everything smelled like nirvana and depression <laughs> and kind of commercialized depression yeah. so at one point during the party everyone was in my room and i was like this is the life i'm so yeah. popular like having literally there's like acoustic guitar guy yeah. playing the guitar on the floor my friend danny sabios shout out wisconsin and my friend laura milligan gets up to fucking leave and she opens the closet door she had hidden her purse in yeah. my closet even though it was a party filled with people she knew oh no personally. I get it. i'm there she threw her purse in my closet so in front of everyone opens uh, the closet door to the wall of laundry uh, picks up her purse off the top of it and then it's like bye i'll talk to you later and i was just like sitting there like i'm gonna kill you it was so hilariously I humiliating mean, what did their rooms look like those people there true i i that's what made me think of it it was like such a that time is such a time of undone laundry yeah which is the grossest way to live i'm still there because i think my (laughs) garage is haunted and i don't like going in there so i'm just kind of like i'll do laundry when vince gets home because i don't want to go in there yeah that's well garages are kind of creepy and dark do you not have good lighting out there no it's an old like grant like original la grandma like it hasn't been touched since the 40s except by like motor oil and like every kind of paint that's ever been used in the house from the since the 1940s is in there in its bucket right? in its bucket yes, with like piled and up. it says like what room it was for it's just like it's scary yes so, it's ancient it's ancient <laughs> i guess i guess you can fix stuff like that i don't know mm, i mean i we could go over there and um we can put up some uh posters <laughs> black light posters yep do you want to get that thing of the thing you flip yeah. the double bird it'll be our hangout <laughs> come on let's hang out in the garage we're gonna turn it into your she shed vince and i will do garage beers sometimes and it's pretty legit that's fun we open the garage he bought us both camping chairs and we just sit out there and you got a refrigerator for the garage which is something homeowners do that i had never experienced right and we just sit and drink mgd and like the neighbors walk by Fuck and yes. they're like are they must be airbnb because <laughs> these people better not live in our neighborhood and we're like what's up Garage beers is really making my heart grow three times larger. Garage beers. That's called relationship goals right there. It's Hell fun. yes! Like, and we have a perfectly nice deck with a view. Just <laughs> we sit on the fucking mad garage, fucking cobweb, spider webs everywhere. Yes, you're making it your own. Trash. There's trash. It's for trash. Okay. Did you ever watch the show 
uh, I think it was, what was the one where everyone confronts people about their addictions? Oh. Uh, Intervention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I was obsessed. Did you ever see the one, the lady that was addicted to pills and she would sit in the garage in her house uh-uh. smoking, chain smoking because she wasn't allowed to smoke right. inside the house? So why even come in the house? Did so, you stay out so there? So literally she was only ever out sitting in this lawn chair in the garage and her children would come out to talk to her um. and her one son was like super like kind of weepy all the time just because his mom was never yeah, yeah. inside the house. Yeah. And they finally got her to to go to rehab. Yes. The thing I don't... Yeah. That's one of those things. It's such a good show. And it's that thing where that's how it is, especially these days with pills. And as we've all learned with the uh, fucking Oxycontin, like deluge on this country, it's so easy to get pills and to live in a pill world. And to be like, they're prescribed to me. It's okay. You know, like I'm allowed to take these, which I get. I have fucking crazy back pain. Sure. And also you need solutions for immediate awful problems. And and then when they turn into other problems, you just start adapting like that. She was... I, I identified with her so much of like, I just need to do this one thing. And then she couldn't get out of that chair. Yeah. Oh, amazing. It's, yeah. Garage beers is the polar opposite. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You guys are doing the opposite energy. That's right. (laughs) Sorry. I brought it up. No, it's good. (laughs) Um, speaking of, I don't know. Clothes. Clothes. In okay. your closet. They put in your closet. That's right. They smell like cigarettes. Sure. Um, we're having a 50% off lots of merch sale. Because <laughs> it all smells like cigarettes. Yeah. We, sm- <laughs> we accidentally smoked in the warehouse. <laughs> but there's just like a shit ton. It's like there's shirts that are 15 bucks. There's like everything's on like a lot of great stuff's on sale. Perfect. Um, at myfavoritemurder.com. Just go to the shop. Go there and get the stuff. And then we'll make new stuff and you can have yeah. other stuff and it'll be a continuous right. cycle. It's to make room for new merch that we're going to create, yes. which is exciting. Um, so that's if you feel like that doing that, do it. If not, you know, it's your world. Hey, hey, man. Hey, man. It's chill. Peace. <laughs> or whatever. Peace. <laughs> Peace and stuff. I have this tweet here from a listener named Chelsea Sanders at Callie Blair on Twitter. She wrote in. My favorite murder. I made Steven's mug. Oh, I'm using it again. The Jody, Mr. Jody Arias mug. Mr. Jody Arias mug. I was appearing on Mother May I Sleep with podcast and I wanted to bring gifts. It's a straight oh. up Sharpie. <laughs> it is straight up Sharpie, but then baked. So it'll last. Amazing. Glad it made its way over to Exactly Right and Karen Kilgariff. Oh, and then here's a follow up tweet. Also on a weird coincidence, I was also an extra in Sleepover like Georgia Hartstark, which I mentioned in my episode of Mother May I Sleep with podcast. Oh my God. So that's your new best friend. Say her name again. Uh, Chelsea. At Kelly Blair. Thanks, Kelly Blair. I love that we found the person who made this with a Sharpie. (laughs) Great design. Good job. Work. What else? Lots of people telling me about the musical. Right. Jesus fucking crap. Thank thank you, guys. Great. Thank you. Check the comments. We love to know this information. (laughs) Once. I love to know it 15,000 times. There's a musical called Parade. It's beautiful. There's songs in it. It's about Leo Frank's death and about Mary Fagan's murder. Yeah. And Leo Frank's murder. And uh, I guess now we have to, they have to restage it on Broadway. We need to go see it. But people were, the people who wrote in who clearly are uh, musical. Mm Mm-hmm. Erinos. Um, 
really raved about how beautiful the, yeah. mu- the music is. I want to see it. I'll see it. I swear. And then many other people for the follow-up, uh, Pencil Passion oh, yeah. reminded me that Blackwing pencils are the best there are, <gasps> and I do have some. Wow. I just couldn't remember the name while we were talking about I, I, This is a world that I didn't know about. Like, I know. That was a thing. I, I know. I, if you would ask me what kind of pencil I'd like, I'd say number two. Like, right. I don't... There's no... Mechanical. I like mechanical pencils. But, you know, mechanical is a great choice, though. Yeah. Because you don't need a sharpener. Yeah. And they, and if you, you throw a lot of stuff in your purse, if it breaks, you just have a new pencil. Yeah. That's the best. I love it. Mechanics have it right. <laughs> <laughs> and you're a mechanic at heart. <laughs> That's right. Oh, and also just we announced last week that our oh, yeah. friend and co-worker, Bridger Weiniger, his new podcast, I Said No Gifts. Gifts, you guys. It sounds like we're saying gifts, like G-I-F. But it's gifts. Yeah, no one talks like that, though. So <laughs> if if you can't put together the sentence, I said no gifts and not know that the word we're saying is not <laughs> gifts. I said no gifts. Yeah. Stop it. For a vocal stop, podcast. Stop being fucking 19, please. I, as a favor to me. <laughs> okay. Your favorite 68 year old. <laughs> I said no gifts. <laughs> Uh, the trailer is up on iTunes and everywhere you find your podcast and you can listen to a sample of it and go subscribe and let's get those numbers up. Apparently numbers are the big thing on I- the iTunes charts. What? It's all about the numbers. No. So let's play the numbers game, Look, everybody. We're not all about math. Like that's not our thing. No, just the pencil. Yeah. So <laughs> we're not even paying attention. No, we're more about spirituality. Yeah. Spiritual numbers. Let's yes. get those up. I'm I'm a ten spiritually. <laughs> I'm a diamond spiritually. <laughs> crystal. I'm a crystal. I'm a, I'm a platinum card member. <laughs> uh, Buddhist. Cool. That's all on my little list. Is that list. it? I think so. Uh, my therapist has a podcast now. Don't know how to do with that. Uh, <laughs> now you have else? to go to a second therapist yeah, about the first therapist podcast. Exactly. Is that real? Yeah, and it's good. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's called your mental breakdown and. It's good. Check it out. <laughs> just a rave endorsement. <laughs> it's just weird. I don't know if it's like if it's like against protocol for me to plug something that my therapist does. Out- <laughs> she keeps giving examples. She's like, I have this one girl, brown hair, uh, in her mid to late thirties. Oh, she. Well, it's mine and Vince's therapist, so that's like a different thing, right? Because it's mostly his fault. <laughs> Yeah, I get it. I'm on your side. 100%. We have therapy in our garage. How great would that be? She comes to the garage. It's he, I don't, but I don't, okay. but it doesn't matter. So I don't know why I had to correct you in that. Well, because they, if they're looking for his podcast, they should know. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's smart. That's it. Okay. Your mental breakdown. It's actually, they, it's okay. What? It's, it's a therapy session. It's like a they they do a therapy session with this person who's anonymous, and then they discuss it. And it's like that's cool. It's cool, and it's like interesting, and you can relate. Even though the th- the dude having his therapy lesson session is 24 year old guy you can still relate to a lot of the stuff and it's also good for people who don't know what therapy is like yet and are kind of nervous yes it's for a nice that um, for sure yeah and and the therapist i go to doug is really fucking good so okay. it's like nice to listen to how how it's supposed to work kind of in some cases now you should start a therapy practice <laughs> And just be like, oh, here, really quick, I want to give you my business card. Yeah. Before we've can you plug my therapy practice <laughs> on your podcast? To your other clients. 
Oh, I just wanted to get into your career path now. You know, you know how it is. You know. Wait, how was your trip to New Orleans? Yes, your mistaken trip. <laughs> I, uh... I just got dates mixed up, and so instead of going to New Orleans for my friend, lovely Carrie Cassidy Vintage's fucking 40th birthday celebration with a bunch of friends at an Airbnb in New Orleans, (laughs) Vince and I went two weeks later on our own. (laughs) When she actually made the the ticket reservation. Incorrectly. (laughs) We were there for for Mardi Gras, and we had a great time, just for two days, and I met, of course, a a fucking lovely murderinas at every location, and it was really fun. That's great. Yeah. Oh, wait. Can we talk about my favorite Murderino interaction lately? Yeah. Georgia and I were in, uh, we were going to some some, uh, appointment together. I can't remember what we were doing. And this girl was coming out. We were in the parking garage. And we were walking into the building and this girl was coming out and she was on crutches. Yeah. And she looked at us and went, oh, oh, you know what? Fuck you. (laughs) And I start laughing because her first initial look on her face was clearly like, oh, you guys are here. And then she just started yelling at us for being there and that she was just listening to us and fuck us. It was almost like it was like a fuck you to the universe (laughs) and like, you can't trick me. Fuck you. It was was good. She kept going. Hilarious. Didn't stop to talk us. No, no, no. She was she was like hobbling away. She had like a cast on. Oh, it was delightful. So shout out to her. She told us her name and now I can't remember. Yeah. But um, you're you're number one. (laughs) And I hope your your whatever's wrong with you gets well soon. (laughs) I hope you're happy <laughs> fuck you <laughs> fuck you <laughs> kept fucking walking georgia have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant like perfectly scrambled eggs oh my god yes karen and then all i want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day well you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient Made in cookware. Made in was created to bring restaurant quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made in. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of made in products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad. So it's It's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit MadeInCookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com. Goodbye. Hey, Karen, you know that feeling when you're stressed out and your heart starts to pound and your mind is racing? I do. I know it well. Well, while there's no cure for stress, therapy can help shape your response to it. And since May is Mental Health Awareness Month, there's no better time to try Talkspace. When you sign up for Talkspace, you'll receive a personalized match with a therapist or psychologist, typically within 48 hours. Forbes rates Talkspace as the number one online therapy platform, plus their licensed professionals are in network with almost all major insurance companies. Once you meet your therapy goals, or if you want to cancel for any reason, Talkspace will provide you with a prorated refund for unused time. 
I feel like these days people understand the importance of therapy, but the difficult part is just taking that first step. It took me months to make my first therapy appointment. I was so scared. I had a lot of ideas in my head about it. And that's why I think Talkspace is such a good idea because making it so approachable will just get you there sooner. Then you can actually get in there, figure out what you need, talk to an actual professional and be on your way to solving some stuff that you might want to solve. To celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering our listeners $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80. Go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and use promo code SPACE80. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and enter promo code SPACE80 and get $80 off your first month and show your support for our show. That's Talkspace.com slash MFM. Enter promo code space 80. Goodbye. This is a story I got from a Instagram account called History Photographed. And they post like a historical photograph and then tell you about the story. And I had never heard this before. And I was into it. That sounds like a good way to learn. It is. It totally is. Go buy the things that don't catch your eye. Yeah. Then when you're like, what's this? Yeah. My Instagram feed is all history photographs and cats and dogs and some penguins and like random shit. Now it's it's pretty enjoyable. If this is a story about a cat, a dog, and a penguin going on an adventure in 1918, I will fucking kill you. Oh, fuck you. Shit. Uh, no. I love um, this story. Oh, fuck. Uh, I don't have a story this week. Papers wrestling. I forgot to. Uh... Okay. No, this is, uh, this is the hijacking of Pan Am Flight 73 and the heroine of hijacking. Wow. Yeah. Wait, can I just ask? One off mic question. Always. On the mic only. Okay. Is there shooting in the plane on this one? Yeah. I, I was fucking going to do this. No. Yes, I was. I had, I actually think I asked Jay to start researching it. Are you serious? Because it's so fucking good. It's the one from 1986. I think that's it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You tell me. Though. Right. Yes. I, there's. No, you tell me. No, you fucking tell me what this story <laughs> I wish you would tell me. We're acting like there's two hijacking stories. You did one already. And now here's the second here's one. Here's the second one. I grabbed it. If only. I, I mugged Jay and took his other hijacking story. <laughs> um, this I got article or info uh, info from a BBC article by uh, Megan Mohan, an article from the a website called View from the Wing by Gary Leff, a Medium article by Karthik Nambi and Wikipedia. So, Karen, a lot was going on in 1986. True. <laughs> you were there. I was there. Sophomore year, baby. Okay. It was my prime. I was uh, six years old. <laughs> Uh, I know. So I don't really remember this a lot, but you probably do. So please tell me about it if you want to jump in at any point. Oh, yeah. You have no choice. <laughs> I'm, I, all, I as if, I'm all about jumping in. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let me tell you some shit about 1996. On January 28th, 73 seconds after launching, Space Shuttle Challenger disintegrated Horrifying. in the middle of the fucking air, killing the entire crew. Sally Ride was on that. That's right. Yeah. On April 26th, one of the reactors at Chernobyl nuclear plant in the Ukraine explodes, Very creating nice. the world's worst nuclear disaster. Can't I can't watch the movie Chernobyl because we kind of sat there while it happened, yeah. hoping it wasn't as like hoping it wasn't worse than they were saying. Yeah. It was such a strange, awful like the whole nuclear yeah. threat. 
It's terrifying at the it time. It was terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Would you go to Chernobyl if you had a chance to get like a? No, no, no. A, oh, oh uh, yeah. I don't like cancer. Me personally, <laughs> I'm not one of those run for cancer. I think I'm very anti-cancer. Oh, oh, you're gonna take a stance. You know what? Here I go. <laughs> Suck cancer. <laughs> okay. Of course, there's Haley's Comet. Fucking Geraldo Rivera opens Al Capone's secret vault. Remember wah, that wah. one? That's right. The black hole known as Ronald Reagan is president. <laughs> and is secretly in the midst of what will become known as the Iran-Contra affair. Yeah. Read about it, everyone. It's important history. What? I don't know any. I, I know the name of it. Yeah. And I know it was bad. It's and armed there's tons fucking, of lying. And there's ar- people arming people they shouldn't. And nobody gets in trouble for anything. Oh, that's Oliver North stuff. Okay. I believe... Why am I doing this? Why do I continue after four years to guess and lie? You mean after 49 years? (laughs) It's just how I interact. I want people to know I understand them. Yeah. And if I don't. You want to, I get it. You want to be... You want to be a part of it. I want to be <laughs> with you. <laughs> okay. Um, on April 14th, 1986, the United States launches airstrikes against Libya in retaliation for the Libyan sponsorship of terrorism against American troops and citizens. There's a lot of history to unpack there. Just unpack it real quick right now. <laughs> How dare you challenge me in the middle of this? I would get up and leave. (laughs) Stephen's leaving. Shit. Stephen. Okay. Meanwhile, on September 5th, 1986, Pan Am Flight 73 takes off from what is present day Mumbai, what is then Bombay, uh, en route to New York. And there's layovers in Karachi, in Pakistan, in Frankfurt, Germany, and the Boeing. (laughs) What? That's four layovers? No, wait. Did that ticket cost $102? And I wonder if they're even layovers at that point where like it's just stopping. Yeah, but they people can't, are so like people can't who, go all the way. People who are going from Bombay to New York have to stop at all those fucking places. But, yeah. can, but it's a time when you can stay on the plane. Oh, that's And the good. people depart who, who are like going to these other places and then more people get on. So it's kind of like a city bus. <laughs> but across the world. Exactly. So um, the Boeing 747 lands at the Karachi airport for refueling at 4.30 in the morning. It's carrying 394 passengers, nine inf- infants, an American flight crew, and 13 Indian flight attendants. Uh, a total of 109 passengers to spark dispark disembark thank you at Karachi and new passengers board around 6 Mm a.m. so everyone's fucking doing their thing getting on getting off going to the next they're ready to go to the next spot yeah Uh, I don't want to fly for that long no please don't make me yeah suddenly there's a van that was modified to look like airport security and it's uh, driven by four hijackers. It gets through a security checkpoint and drives right up to one of the boarding stairways to the plane. And this is when they were on the tarmac. So it's not like you had to board through the tunnel like you do now. Right. You just go right up to the plane. I mean, that's when they would be kind of like, does anyone want anyone to roll by the plane just right. for, for shits and gigs right. before we all leave? Yeah, exactly. Um, shots are fired. Fired outside the plane, killing two Kuwait Airlines staff members working on a nearby aircraft. Mm. And then the four armed men enter the plane and start shooting. And they've got AK-47s. They have fucking grenades and shit strapped to them. Uh. I mean, it's there's no it's obvious that they're hijackers. Right. I they're, mean, yeah. And they're shooting. Yes. So the hijackers fire shots at the feet of a flight attendant and force her to close the plane door. 
Oh. A flight attendant named uh, Shireen Pavan, who was out of sight of the hijackers. And there might have been a there, there's varying reports of everything that's going on here because some people died, some people didn't. And it's just word of mouth at this point of what exactly happened. But one of the flight attendants who was out of sight, hears the gunfire, realizes what's going on and uses the, the intercom you know, phone and calls the cockpit to let them know what's going on. Um, she gives them the hijack code, alerting the crew. And uh, another flight attendant named Sunshine Vesuwala leads the hijackers. They, t- they say, take us to the cockpit. She leads them there and she notices that the overhead escape hatch in the cockpit has been deployed and realizes that the, the whole crew has gotten out in the um, cockpit. So she kind of... Are you allowed to do that? Yeah. So about that. Okay. So people criticize it. People say it's a good thing. There's like differing arguments. One of the good things about it is that that the plane can't then take off, can't be blown up midair. Yeah, they can't force it to take off. Exactly. Like they're kind of stuck there. So the situation is um, confined to the airport. Okay. You know? I I agree with that. Yeah. So them getting out means there's no one to fly the plane and it foils their whole plan. Okay. Great. So um, I changed my mind. Okay. Great. But they had to like get out. It's one of those huge double-decker planes. They had to fucking climb out with ropes and shit like that, and they get out of there. So this whole thing definitely screws up the hijackers' plan because the hijackers are part of the Abu Nidal organization, or ANO. It's a Palestinian terrorist organization backed by Libya. It's defunct now. Um, and it's opposed to U.S. and Israeli policy in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And they're blamed for a string of attacks in the 1970s and 80s, killing and wounding hundreds of people. And their plan was to fly to Cyprus, where other members of their militant group were incarcerated on terror charges and get them the fuck out of uh, prison. Okay. So that's their plan and it doesn't work now because they have no pilots. Right. So when the lead hijacker called uh, Safarini realizes that the cockpit crew has escaped, he knows he has to negotiate with officials at that point. So he orders the first and business class passengers to get back into coach um, and people are like sitting in the aisles. They're kind of just like confined to these two, this one space with the hijacker, two hijackers on either side of them. So for nearly 17 hours, the hijackers hold the passengers and crew hostage. So the first casualty happens around 10 a.m., four hours after they hijacked the plane. Safarini goes through the plane and finds a 29-year-old Indian-American resident of California. He'd been recently naturalized as an American citizen. His name is Rajesh Kumar. And Safarini orders Kumar to come to the front of the aircraft and to kneel at the front doorway of the aircraft. Okay. I think this might be the same hijacking that is the uh, story behind the, one of the first episodes of I Survived I ever saw. What? But, but I'll let you tell the rest. It's basically just a this hijacking story, but I'll, I'll tell you later if it is actually that one. Okay. Because there's more than three hijacking <laughs> stories, unfortunately. Um and so he has to face the front of the aircraft with his hands and feet, his hands behind his head. So he's kneeling there with a gun to his head mm. at the front, at the door. Yeah. Safarini tells officials that if a new co- um, cockpit crew is not sent on the plane in the next 15 minutes, Kumar will be shot. So when a pilot doesn't arrive within the hour, Safarini shoots Kumar in the head and pushes him out of the door onto the tarmac below, which I think I've seen video of. Is there a video of that? I, I don't know. And if not, then there's other hijackings that it could have been the video of. Yeah. But it's hor- It's stuck with me since I was a kid. I of course. It. Yeah. Um, 
So Pakistani personnel on the tarmac report that Kumar is still breathing when he's placed in an ambulance. They grab him. He's pronounced dead on the way to the hospital in Karachi. Mm. So outside on the tarmac, Pan Am's Karachi director, Viraf Daroga, uses a megaphone and tries to negotiate with the hijackers. He tells them that the authorities are looking for pilots to fly them wherever they need to go, which is true. They're trying to get like people diverted into that, that, um, what's it called? Airport. Thank you. Mm-hmm. To get someone on the plane. Right. But it's just taking too long. The terrorists then tell people the, are like, I'm about to land. Right. I just need, oh, I don't know, 36 <laughs> more hours. I'm going the wrong way. So the terrorists tell the flight attendants to um, collect the passports of all of the um, people on the plane and the passengers so that they can identify the Americans on board because that's their target. So the flight attendants who are led by the head of uh, the head of flight attendants, Nirja Banat, who so she's in charge of the flight attendants because the pilots left and now she's the most senior cabin crew member. Mm -hmm. And she is like, we're going to fucking we're not, you know, we're she's like, we're going to do what we were trained to do and we're not going to freak out. Yes. So um, they have plans to foil the hijackers and are ready to risk their lives to save as many passengers as they can. Ooh, I like this. Yeah. So let me tell you about Nirja. She grew up in Bombay, India, in a Punjabi family with her father, mother, and two brothers. Her family calls her Ladu, which is the Hindu word for sweet and God-gifted. Mm-hmm. Her dad describes her as very sensitive, deeply affectionate, and extremely decent. Oh. At age of 16, she spotted <laughs> your dad describing you as decent. <laughs> I think that he means like a decent human. Yes. <laughs> she's okay. You know, she's decent. She'll get the job done as a daughter. At the age of 16, she's spotted by a modeling scout, gets several modeling assignments at ad agency. She becomes um, like she's a model. She's fucking so beautiful. Uh, she attends several good. <laughs> she's not one of those weird models. <laughs> it's all personality. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. She attends several good schools and eventually graduates from St. Xavier College in Bombay. So she's super smart. In March of 1985, she travels to the American Gulf for an arranged marriage, but it's a toxic and abusive marriage and relationship. She has to borrow money from him just to make phone calls back home. He's Uh. this really awful, controlling person. She gathers all her strength and leaves him and goes back home, which is kind of unheard of at the time. Yeah. Or, you know. Leaving an arranged marriage. Yeah, Yeah. totally. She then applies for flight attendant position with Pan Am, who had decided to have an all-Indian cabin crew for its Frankfurt to India routes that year. And out of 10,000 applicants she's placed within the top 80 and so and she's selected for training in miami florida and she returns to india as a purser which is what your dad did right yes on the cruise ship yeah uh, she, she carried she carried a lot of luggage i don't i don't, think I don't so. know it's it says in here that um it's the title for the chief flight attendant so i think it maybe means something different there yeah, yeah. and it's considered the most senior crew position so cool. i think she's like she's fucking in charge hell yeah um it's two days before her 23rd birthday when the plane is hijacked 23rd she's a little baby she's a baby yeah okay and already so accomplished the flight attendants collect all the passports and then nirja directs the the other attendants to secretly pull out any American passports and they fucking hide them. They like tuck them into seats. They throw them in the little trash bins and um, hide them in their clothes and they refuse to give them any American passports and they manage to hide 41 passports total. 
Ooh, ooh, weird full body chill. Yeah. That's crazy. Isn't it? Yes. Uh, and it's so like risky. It's really risky and it's really important and yeah. it's really brave. I mean, when it comes down to it, the, these flight attendants are human beings just like everyone on board and yet they're, and they just have a certain job that puts them in this position and yet they are willing to sacrifice their lives because of it. Yeah, because they're the ones that have to. Yeah. I, that's what I... They don't have to, though. They just... It's like they have so much integrity that they're willing to. Yes. They know they're the they're the final... They're the last yeah. line. If you're the person that's like, well, they told me to do it and they have a gun, so yeah. here. It's like, but you could also try to think of a plan. Yeah. You could try to do something, and right. they did. Which is kind of why the pilots leaving is touchy for me because, like, they had authority. They had means. They... You know, there could, I, it's hard. But I was on that side, but the rationale and the reasoning yes. that the plane can't leave if the pilots are gone works for me. They couldn't have just thrown the keys out of the <laughs> escape hatch. <laughs> There's the spare Go keys get that are up in the ceiling. <laughs> Go grab them. I mean, it, it's basically saying you, the, you, it's like taking the engine out where it's like, there's nothing we can do. A hundred percent. I buy that. Yes. Yes. I didn't like it in the beginning. Yeah. Um, I love it now. <laughs> okay. So, uh, over the next few hours, Nirja and the other attendants continue to serve people food and drinks on, like, they're making sure everyone's eating and has drinks, which is like, they're, yes. It's so crazy. God bless. Uh-huh. You've never tasted a more delicious tiny bottle of doers in your life than when that <laughs> shit gets served up. Amen. Like, what would you, what beverage would you like? I'll fucking take anything. Yeah. At that point. In the evening, the hijackers, who seem to be like, they talk to the um, passengers. They don't, I don't think right away kill anyone else. They spare a couple people's lives as well. And they allow everyone to go to the toilet one after the other by crawling on the floor, on the floor with their hands over their heads. I'm not saying the hijackers are good guys. It's just this weird message they're sending. At one point, Nirja removes a... Okay, so here's what she does. She takes a page out of flight manual that describes procedures for um, opening the aircraft door. And she fucking tucks it into a magazine and then is like to a passenger, here is a magazine. Yes. This magazine. Here's the the page 37. Here's the magazine you asked for, man with huge biceps. Right. Who's sitting in the emergency exit. Mm -hmm. Isn't that amazing? And probably gave him a tiny eye flare as she handled it. Right. Here's the thing. And here's an extra doers for your trouble. (laughs) Yes. Here's your payment. If people, if you're in a high pressure situation, pay close attention to what other people are doing. Because sometimes that's the only way people can communicate with you. Yeah. I love that. I just like, you hope and pray that. When you're in a panicked situation someday, because we're all going to be in one some way or another, you know, yep. in our lives, yep. that we react with without panicking and with fucking foresight and uh, calmness and can like take the next steps necessary to make the situation better. Yeah. I just really fucking hope that. I believe in the calmness amidst worst case scenarios because it's happened to me in very strange ways. Like I told you the story of when I thought there was a rattlesnake in my sister's car, but it was a hilarious college boy prank, Ugh. but it was a coiled rattlesnake that was stuck what? and they put it in my sister's car to see how much we'd freak out. And in, I didn't know this. I leaned it. Yeah. I leaned it. We were loading up my sister's car <laughs> when we were both in Sacramento. I opened the passenger door, put something in her car, looked down, saw a coiled <gasps> rattlesnake and then moved backwards and shut the door 
door so quickly you did it. that the guys that were watching to be like, har, har, yeah. you screamed and cried or whatever. They were like, whoa. <laughs> and they were super impressed. And then I was super impressed. They're like, don't like, fuck with Karen. I didn't realize I had that in me to, in, in, I just was like, get away. Get it, get it. Good for you. And away. close the door. So and you can't even get out. close the fucking door. <gasps> I had a, a moment where I was in, um, I think like right before I met, I was in a head on. Or no, sorry. Right before I met Vince, I was in this like head-on fucking car accident where mm. someone turned in front of me and I completely smashed into them. And a few seconds before it happened, I realized there was no way to get out of it. I was going to completely ram this car. Oh, it's so scary. And I just thought, okay, here, like I've, I have anxiety. So I'm always waiting for the worst case scenario. So I was like, here it comes. This is the worst case. Do, you know, and I remember how you always read about people who are drunk driving. The drunk people don't get hurt because they're so relaxed. Yes. So I made myself relax my entire body <gasps> when I hit the car. And you weren't injured? No. Oh, dude. Yeah. That's like, I that's mean, I don't know if I wasn't injured because I had a good car. <laughs> Thank you, Nissan Versa. Or <laughs> because the car accident wasn't as bad as I thought it was, you know, but that was a very high value endorsement. It by the was, way. right? <laughs> yeah. Jesus. That's a safe car. Well, that's amazing. That's a little bit like the time I got sucked under in a wave in Hawaii where I couldn't get, oh, I was basically terrifying. spinning like a washing machine and I know which way's up. Yeah. And it was, and I just went, do not like I just had this moment of like I went so calm I've yeah. never been that calm in my life and I was just like just rem- c- continue to hold your breath this is going to be over in like 10 seconds like count to 10 yeah. and then that's what happened I came up there was so much sand in my bathing uh, suit there was just so much sand everywhere, everywhere. and then I was kind of like oh, why did you save me <laughs> it was like one of those moments but in the moment of it I think we all have the capacity there is that in you and you should know it so as evening starts to fucking set in and on the onboard power supply is getting lower and the lights are getting dimmer and the cool air isn't circulating anymore which sounds terrifying yeah then the mechanic of the plane named merji karas tells Safarini that the emergency power is only going to last like 15 more minutes and the airplane is going to experience a blackout and tells him to prepare for it. Oh. So at around 9pm se- almost 17 hours after the initial hijack, can you fucking imagine? The aircraft auxiliary power goes down and the plane goes dark and you can see um, in like the old the news reports that I watched it's the, the whole um, tarmac is black and the plane is black because they turn the lights off so that the military could fucking rush in and shit. Oh, nice. So it's all dark. Yeah. And they the hijackers panic because they think that the Pakistani security forces are getting ready to raid the plane. That's why the, the lights went out and ra- that's what they think. So a hijacker... Um, he, they, they just panic at that point. And a hijacker tries to shoot out the explosive belt worn by another hijacker. He tries to like f- ignite it to cause an explosion that'll, that would be massive enough to kill the entire, uh, you know, plane, passenger and crew, as well as the hijackers. But since the cabin's so dark, he misses, Thank God. causing only a small detonation. Oh. And then the other hijackers hearing the shooting panic and they begin shooting their weapons, um, into the cabin at passengers. Oh. And it, they start throwing their grenades and oh. there's little explosions. And you can see in one of the videos, there's like a simulation, a computer simulation, and there's little explosions all over the plane. Wow. And it's terrifying. But the lack of light also means that they're not able to pull the pins fully and end up only creating these little explosions instead of what should be huge 
explosions. And ultimately, the guns create the most damage since each bullet is just ricocheting off the cabin and creating uh, shrapnel. Yeah. So everyone's in a panic at this point. Everyone. Yeah. When the lights go out, all the flight attendants and passengers are in the middle section of the cabin and several seated on the ground in the aisles and near the doors. And uh, Maharishi, the 28-year-old mechanic, they realize has been killed Ugh. and in the chaos and everything going on it, people start opening the doors oh okay they're like they take this distraction to open some of the cabin doors great but it's not clear who opens them and although Nirja could have been she was by a door and could have been one of the first people off the flight because of her proximity instead she stays behind to help the passengers get off safely <sighs> and starts ushering them out <sighs> out onto the slide Oh, like stays on board yeah. and like amidst this chaos. And when all the passengers are finally off the plane, the rest of the crew who had escaped, they go back into the dark plane because they realize that they're not hearing any more gunfire. And so they go back on, which is so brave. That's amazing. That's when Sunshine, the flight attendant, sees Nirja. She's been shot in the hip. She's conscious but bleeding heavily. And according to a surviving passenger, Nirja had been guiding the passengers to the emergency exit in this mayhem. And the hijackers had noticed and they realized that she is shielding three American children with her body as the hijackers grab her by her ponytail and they shoot her multiple times. Oh, God. So she's, at, she's shot and down and bleeding. Ugh. Sunshine calls over to another attendant. They get um, Nirja to the emergency slide. They, like, help her off. And she's put into an ambulance and transported to the hospital, which is completely overflowing with other passengers at this point. Nirja has a pulse upon arrival, but she ultimately dies from her injuries. Oh, God. I know. The combined efforts of the 14 flight attendants that day, uh, it's thought saved hundreds of lives. And for two more days after the attack, the crew stayed with the young children who are left alone until they can be reunited with their other family members. <sighs> like fucking heroics. For real? Yeah. 22 people are killed and about 150 are injured from the attack. Uh, three of the hijackers are caught fleeing the airport and Saharini is still on board when Pakistan's security forces enter the plane. The 381 total passengers plus crew, the crew on the Pan Am Flight 73, are citizens of 14 different countries. India represents about 26% of the people on board and they also represent 28% of those killed. Mm. And out of a total of uh, 44 American passengers, only two are killed during the hijacking. Whoa, that's yeah. a miracle. Yeah. After a short break, all the members of the Flight 73 crew returned to Pan Am to uh, work and they work at least a couple years, all of them. Whoa. Yeah. They occasionally work the same flight together and run into each other and they don't like discussing the hijacking, obviously. And uh, two of the six of them remain in the industry to this day. Wow. Yeah. During the interviews that they have with BBC in 2016, because the, a movie comes out about this whole thing and uh, a lot of them hadn't talked to the media at that point, but they, uh, some of them then finally do and they stress that there's no single hero that day, that crew members not not interviewed played an equally important role. Mm -hmm. So for the, the hijackers, so there's five total. There was one that wasn't on the plane. They are deported by Pakistani authorities to Palestine in 2008 and they escape. Mm. So um, on December 3rd, 2009, the FBI, in coordination with the State Department, announced a $5 million reward for information leading to their capture. And it, the FBI released new age-progressed images of them. And the case is still under investigation by the Washington 
field office of the bureau. Whoa. Yeah. To this day. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's hard. I can't say that with total surety because there's different reports of like how people got away and how much time they got and did they escape or were they let out? Like we don't, it's so it's, it's, that's a whole different fucking story. Yeah. But the Pan Am crew of Flight 73 are given courage awards by the airline in 1986 and the U.S. Department of Justice in 2005 and the U.S. Attorney General in 2006. And Nirja Bahnat is awarded posthumous bravery awards in India and Pakistan. Mm. And she becomes internationally known as the heroine of hijacking and becomes the youngest recipient of the uh, Ashok Chakra Award, which is India's most prestigious military award for bravery during peacetime. Aww. 23 years old and sacrifices herself in that way. They release a statement uh, with the award that says, quote, her loyalties to the passengers of the aircraft in distress will forever be a lasting tribute to the finest qualities of the human spirit. Mm-hmm. She also receives multiple awards for her courage from the United States government government and Pakistan. And in 2004, the Indian Postal Service releases a stamp commemorating her. Wow. Yeah, we'll put, we'll put it on the Instagram. That's very cool. After her death, her family sets up a Pan Am trust with insurance money and a, a contribution from Pan Am. And the trust presents two awards every year. One is for a flight crew member worldwide who acts beyond the call of duty. And the other is the Nirja Banat Award, and it goes to an Indian woman who is brave and helps other women in distress when faced with social injustice. Wow. And a seven-year-old child who was on board that flight is now a captain for a major airline and has stated that Nirja has his bit, has been his inspiration and that he owes every day of his life to her. Oh, my God. And that is the hijacking of Pan Am Flight 73 and the heroine of hijacking, Nirja Bahut. Unbelievable. Fucking crazy, right? I'm sweating right now. You know, I was I was grasping my hands in front of me like a, a little child in <laughs> prayer, being like, oh, my God, I what's going to happen? And that wasn't the same story as the I no. Survived episode, because the woman in the I Survived episode was shot in the head by Ooh. the terrorist and thrown out onto the tarmac. Oh, my God. And just waited there. And they picked her up and they assumed she was dead. I think I saw that one. It's cr- She tells a firsthand story. It's very similar. Was it the one that you told Jay to do? I'm not sure. No, no, no. I think it's not because I think the one that I... No. So there's let's four just, hijackings. Let's say no. <laughs> there's, minima, there's been a minimum of four. Look, hijackings used to be the yeah. way to go. Yeah. For because it got this was pre twenty four hour news cycle yeah. so it got tons of press and and it got people got their way yeah. they got to do it because there was never an effective way to change it right yeah for a while it was huge in the seventies and eighties it seems like yeah amazing yeah great job thank you there's something about the sound of an old timey cash register that really takes me back I know it sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone but it also sounds like we just sold some merch that's right and if you're a Shopify user like us you know that this sound means you just made a sale Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores from accepting payments to managing inventory they have everything you need to sell in person so give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify 
Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, and June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. This week, I'm going to do the Tulsa Race Massacre. It's also called the Black Wall Street Massacre of 1921 or the Greenwood Massacre. Wow. So did you watch Watchmen, the HBO series? Yes. Okay. So you know how it started? Uh, and then there was that one episode that yeah. was entirely dedicated to... That's a true fucking story. That was crazy. Okay, so... This is very cool. So I remember watching that and the whole time I was watching it going, please don't let this be real. And of course it was. And then I read articles about it, whatever. Yeah. Or at least I read one article about it, basically confirming like, oh, no, this is real. And um, it made me think of it because like the Wednesday, like after we recorded last week, someone, uh, Akilah Green, who I follow on Twitter, retweeted this amazing article from The Root, which I'll talk about at the end of the episode, but basically reminded me what an amazing story it is. And it was told in Watchmen so compellingly and incredibly and in this way where you're just like, oh, this is this is that what has been termed black history in this country where basically it doesn't get talked about right. because really fucked up shit happened. Yeah. And, and no one wants to acknowledge it. Yeah. People don't acknowledge it. And it and when they do some, it gets whitewashed or mishandled. Mm-hmm. And then cue me walking in with my papers. <laughs> hey, um, but the cool thing is when a show like that, that's popular and cool and then taking out know, Alan Moore taking mm-hmm. this historical context and then being like hey here's this character you care about yeah. this is this thing that happened to like her ancestors yeah. essentially and now you're in this story yeah. now you understand that this was a real place and time yeah, I, just, I really did a good job of like showing the fear that you would have no matter you know in that situation and how dire and desperate and terrifying it was insane so uh just to quote the sources obviously <laughs> 
the the original concept was because watching Watchmen mm-hmm. and me going, oh my god, oh my god, yeah. the work that got done around this and and basically kind of in the retelling. Mm-hmm. There's an amazing article. So the root article was written by a writer named Jay Connor and a podcaster. Mm. Um, there was also an article in the Washington Post by a writer named Denine L. Brown, and that article is unbelievable and it has pictures and it's it's lots of firsthand accounts. And there's a city council woman who lives in Tulsa now and her she talks about how I believe it was her grandmother she said who she learned about it from her but they barely talk about mm-hmm. it it was literally a taboo subject sure. like they just didn't want to discuss it yeah. because it was a massacre and it's been referred to since historically as a race riot and when you the Classically, the phrase mm-hmm. race riot means black people started it. Right. And that's, that's why it's called a race massacre and that people want it rec- referred to as that because, because of how the story actually goes. Yeah. yeah. It's just one of those things where wording matters. Yeah. And it's a thing that like you don't understand how ignorant you are yeah. until you learn how ignorant yeah. you are. And then how you deal with that ignorance is you can either go, no, I'm not. And yeah. Fuck you. And it's just as sad for me, a white person, <laughs> or you could actually pay attention right. and read and, and try and try. Yeah. Try Open harder. it up a little. Oh, let's and then do better. Try to clap, clap, clap. Do, do better. better. Okay, so there was the there's also a great article in Smithsonian magazine by a writer named Allison Keys about the 2015 discovery of a firsthand 10-page typewritten I, I should have said firsthand here, firsthand account of this massacre by a lawyer in in the Greenwood district named Buck Colbert Franklin. Mm-hmm. So he basically saw it all happening, walked outside like and then when it was all over went home and typed up everything he saw and remembered. Yeah. And then folded it up basically and put it away and it wasn't discovered until like 4 or 5 years ago. Holy shit. And now it's in the Smithsonian. Oh my god. So that's a great article if you want to look that up and see. And then there's a book by a writer named Scott Ellsworth called Death in a Promised Land about the Greenwood Massacre. The forward of that book is by a man, a historian named John Hope Franklin, who I believe worked at the Smithsonian. Wow. And he is the son of Buck Colbert Franklin. Wow. Okay, so that's all if you want to do more reading about this. Those are good places. Also, of course, our friend Wikipedia. Definitely. Was there for me. So, was there for Jay, <laughs> Elias, my researcher, <laughs> and our assistant. Okay, so this starts Monday, May 30th, 1921. It's Memorial Day in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And in the rest of America. So a 19-year-old boy named Dick Rowland, who is a shoe shine that works nearby, uh-huh. he goes into the Drexel building at 319 South Main Street and he gets into the elevator because he needs to ride up to the top floor because that's the only place where there's a blacks only restroom in the entire area. Fuck. And he is a black man. And so he has to go there. It's the only place he can go. Right. So this elevator is operated by a 17 year old white girl named Sarah Page. So they've at the very least seen each other before mm-hmm. because she's the only elevator operator and the only elevator in the Drexel building. Mm-hmm. And he's clearly had to, had to use that restroom sure. at the top of that building before. So soon after Dick Rowland enters the elevator, a clerk at the Drexel's first floor clothing store, Renberg's, hears a woman scream from the elevator. So that clerk rushes out to see a black 
a man running from the building and then he goes into the elevator area to find Sarah Page still in the elevator in what he described as a quote distraught state. So the clerk assumes Sarah's been assaulted and he calls the police. The police arrive, they speak with Sarah. There is no written statement on the record. Huh. It's never ta- none is ever taken. The police begin an investigation and the exact details of what actually happened in the elevator are still unknown, but most people believe that Dick either tripped while he was walking into the elevator and fell and grabbed Sarah's arm to steady himself, uh-uh. or he stepped on her foot as he walked into the elevator and then grabbed her so she wouldn't fall over. But there was basically physical contact and the, it's likely she screamed because she was like startled right. by it. Right. So Dick immediately ran knowing that the worst would be assumed about his actions and his intentions, no matter how innocent the incident actually was. Yeah. So Dick goes to his mom's house in the Greenwood district of Tulsa. So this here's a little historical context, all of which was mostly brand new information to me, the person with barely a high school education. (laughs) Okay. So when the civil war ended in 1865, the slaves in Oklahoma are emancipated and they stay in the area and resettle as free people. So in the early 1900s, Tulsa experiences this huge boom because there's a discovery of a massive oil supply at Red Fork that's just across the Arkansas River from Tulsa. And then in 1905, workers strike another oil well that they call Glenpool and Tulsa becomes one of the most oil-rich areas in America. Did you know that? That there was oil in Oklahoma? Absolutely not. I had no no idea. No, no. No idea. No. Did not know. There's oil. So more and more people come to the area for work and the population grows from around 19, the year 1900 there was a, like almost 1400 people that lived in Tulsa and 20 years later 98,874 people Shit. live in Tulsa and they couldn't it, get one more for a fucking round number <laughs> there? We just have a round number I also like that this is an estimated number and yeah. it's the most rando number of <laughs> totally. all time but that was when I would normally step in and round it up myself yeah. and then you know yeah if wicked fuck wikipedia False information over once again <laughs> okay so oklahoma becomes a state in 1907 basically it's a the whole turn of the century and after is this time of amazing growth especially for the black community in tulsa they're thriving it's a huge accomplishment because this is post-civil war jim crow south there's mm. segregation and bigotry mm. as a constant oppressive reality for all black Americans. And yet the black citizens of Tulsa have figured out how to succeed and prosper despite like a whole system that's rigged against them. So it was a very big deal. So much so the reputation of this thriving black community in Tulsa draws the attention of leading black intellectual and educator of the day, Booker T. Washington. And he takes a trip out to Oklahoma to see what's going on. What year did you say? 1905. A year later, with Booker T. Washington's guidance, they officially organized this 4,000-acre, entirely black-owned neighborhood as the Greenwood District. Wow. There's two newspapers, two movie theaters. One of the movie theaters is featured in Watchmen. Uh Uh, Grocery stores, churches, nightclubs, medical centers, dentist's office, all entirely black-owned. Amazing. And for the next 13 years, Greenwood, the Greenwood District flourishes, and its success earns the nickname Black Wall Street. 
After World War I ends in 1918, American servicemen returning from the war flock to Tulsa because there's a bunch of work and a bunch of money there uh-huh. because of the oil. But many of these white veterans are not happy that they have to compete for jobs with educated black citizens. Uh. So this is also the same time black American veterans are coming back to America and they're trying to assert their equal rights. Right. They just fought for the fucking, our country. They just fought and watched their fellow soldiers die yeah. for their country. They come back to but us. They have no fucking, they have no rights. They can't vote. They can't go to the bathroom in a regular restroom. Yeah. Like it's, it's so restrictive and ridiculous. And they're just like, this is bullshit yeah. as it is. And then the kind of like the third or one of the elements that's the topper, which I mentioned in my story last week about the death of Mary Fagan, mm-hmm. the murder of Mary Fagan and the murder of Leo Frank. It's around this time the KKK starts to have a resurgence. God damn it. Yeah. So tensions are high in, in the South. Yeah. Um, and everywhere. In 1920, a white 18-year-old um, boy named Roy Belton is accused of murdering a local Tulsa taxi driver. And before his guilt is even confirmed, a group of armed men storm the jail, take Belton and lynch him. Holy shit. Yeah. He was white or black? He was white. Oh. So... Many Tulsans blame the police for not protecting Belton. Others support this lynching as this vigilante act that's righteous. But this event makes the black citizens of Tulsa fear for their lives because if that can happen to a white boy, they know that they are definitely not safe. So now we're back to 1921 with the elevator incident. Mm -hmm. The morning after, which is Tuesday, May 31st, 1921, the police find 19-year-old Dick Rowland at his mom's house on Greenwood Avenue and they take him to the Tulsa City Jail at first in Main Street for questioning. Dick explains to police that although he did put his hand on Sarah, he was not trying to hurt her. That afternoon, around 3 p.m., with Dick in custody, the white-owned newspaper, the Tulsa Tribune, prints a story about Dick's arrest with the headline, quote, Nab Negro for Attacking Girl in an Elevator. The rest of the article supports this biased headline and makes Dick look guilty of an attempted assault. Yeah. Okay, so the same paper also publishes an editorial piece. It's like they had these ready to go. Yeah. And they publish an editorial piece with the headline, quote, to lynch Negro tonight, <gasps> essentially calling for more vigilante justice. Mm-hmm. So uh, obviously this newspaper is putting Dick Rowland's life in yeah. danger intentionally. It's like a call to action. It certainly is. So after the paper releases those articles, P- police commissioner J.M. Atkinson gets an anonymous phone call threatening to kill Dick Rowland. Mm. So that coupled with the fact that the police are still shaking off the criticism that they didn't properly protect Belton, Commissioner Atkinson moves Dick Rowland to the more secure jail on the top floor of the Tulsa County Courthouse. But rumors of a potential lynching and the calling for a goddamn lynching in the newspaper. Yeah, it's not a rumor. (laughs) Um draws more and more people to the courthouse and by 7.30 that night, hundreds of angry white Tulsans are gathered outside the courthouse demanding to be shown Dick Rowland. Oh dear, it's called a mob. It's an angry terrorist mob. Yeah. 
So Sheriff Willard M. McCullough sends six of his officers to the roof of the courthouse with rifles. He disables the courthouse elevator and he positions more officers on the top floor with directions not to open the door for anyone. Mm-hmm. Around 820, three white men from the angry mob somehow, quote unquote, mm-hmm. get inside the courthouse. The sheriff immediately gets them out. Mm-hmm. And he then addresses the crowd, telling them there isn't going to be a lynching. They all need to leave. Now, it's it's, you know, questionable whether or not he made a real effort here. Yeah. Because despite his quote unquote orders, the crowd continues to build. And by nine o'clock that night, there are 400 angry white Tulsans outside of the courthouse. Um, With rumors of a potential lynching swirling around the town, the people of the Greenwood District gather on Greenwood Avenue to come up with a plan because they know Dick Rowland is basically Uh a dead man. Uh He's innocent and they're going to kill him terribly. They don't know what their strategy should be, though. The World War I vets want to collect up guns and ammo and prepare for a potential battle. The businessmen want to be as peaceful as possible because they don't want anything that would threaten their hard-earned properties and businesses. Uh About 20 to 50 um, of the men of the Greenwood District decide to go to the courthouse as a group, some of them armed, and offer their services to the sheriff to help protect Dick Rowland. Oh, dear. Right. But uh, I was thinking about that where I was like, oh, it's not the best idea. But you would have to go armed. If yeah. you're going as this tiny group yeah. of black men, you can't not take. Sure. It's understandable. Come with you. It's just like, you know where this is going. But it's the only option is to let them kill an innocent 19 year old. Totally. And also, I think these were very empowered, intelligent right. people who are just kind of like, it ain't going to be this way anymore. Yeah. Like, let's not. Yeah. When they arrive, the sheriff is like, no, thanks. Get out. We yeah. don't need your help. You're making it worse. They go back to the Greenwood District. But the angry white men who'd been standing outside the courthouse were surprised by this group of Greenwood District uh, men. Yeah. And they were enraged that they would appear there. So a bunch of them leave the courthouse. A bunch of the angry white mob leave the courthouse, go home to get their own guns. And a group of several hundred decide to try to get more weapons by robbing the National Guard. Oh, no. Uh, Yeah. So, Mayor James Bell, uh, who was of the National Guard's 180th Infantry Regiment, he knew what was happening downtown at the courthouse, and he was prepared. He had his guards prepped and ready to shoot any intruders on site. And so, basically, they come up to, to the National Guard, Shit. I guess, armory yeah. to go and be like, we're taking guns and we're going to go. Yeah. And they were all just like, we'll kill you if you keep coming. So, they just walked away. Okay, great. <laughs> right? So, they give up there and go back to the courthouse. So, now the crowd of the courthouse has swelled to nearly 2,000 angry white men, most of whom are now armed. Word of the growing armed mob gets back to the Greenwood District, and some of the men in Greenwood decide that this is their last chance to save Dick Rowland from being lynched. Mm. This time, 75 black men from the Greenwood District, now most of them armed, Mm -hmm. arrive at the courthouse just after 10 p.m. Again, they offer their services to the sheriff. Again, he says no. But, But now that the white mob is armed, they're feeling bolder. One of them reportedly ap- approaches one of these 
uh, one of the black men from Greenwood, the Greenwood group, and demands he give up his pistol. The man, ref- the black man refuses. A shot is fired. Oh, yeah. So no one knows for sure who fired that shot, uh-huh. whether or not it was an accident, if it was just like every, you know, emotions were running high, uh-huh. if it was meant to scare both groups off. Uh-huh. No one knows what happened, but ultimately it doesn't matter because it starts a shootout that leaves 12 people, some black and some white, dead. Wow. They're drastically outnumbered, so the group of black men retreat back to the Greenwood district, but this time the white men follow, mm. looting stores along the way for more weapons and ammo. Mm. So now it's on. Yeah. The gunfight continues along the Frisco train tracks, which separate the Greenwood district from the neighboring white districts. Some of the white mob drive into Greenwood proper and start shooting at people and businesses drive-by style. Fuck. So they just start, and some of these people didn't know what was yeah. going on. On. So there's that was part of the Watchmen thing that was so amazing is people coming out of a movie theater or yeah. they were, they went into movie theaters where those people yeah. had no idea and then just Suddenly. murdered everybody oh in a movie theater. So they're just picking people off on the street. In some cases, business owners trying to protect themselves return fire. Yeah. Meanwhile, the National Guard officers come up with a way to stop the chaos, but it's not a great plan. They station guards at the courthouse, but then they... Uh, station protective guards only around the white neighborhoods. Hmm. They send other guards to round up black people, whether they're participating in violence or not, and detain them at the convention hall on Brady Street. So immediately it's protect white people and arrest black people. The fighting continues through the early morning hours of Wednesday, June 1st, 1921. Around 1 a.m., the white mob begins uh, setting black businesses along Archer Street on fire. Some reporters say the Tulsa Fire Department tried to put the fires out, but the white mob threatened to shoot them if they did. Mm -hmm. Some other reports suggest that the fire department was siding with uh, the white mob and deliberately didn't put the fires out. The fires rage, and by 4 a.m., roughly two dozen black-owned businesses are burning. Oh, my God. Okay, so this is where Buck Colbert... I'm pronouncing it Colbert like Stephen Colbert, yeah. but or it could be Colbert, but Buck Colbert Franklin. This is from his 10 page document where he wrote it right after he saw it. Okay. And this you can also read this in Smithsonian Magazine. He wrote, quote, I could see planes circling in midair. They grew in number and hummed, darted and dipped low. I could hear something like hail falling upon the top of my office building. Down East Archer, I saw the old Midway Hotel on fire, burning from its top. And then another and another and another building began to burn from their top. The sidewalks were literally covered with burning turpentine balls. I knew all too well where they came from, and I knew all too well why every burning building first caught first caught from the top i paused and waited for an opportune time to escape where oh where is our splendid fire department with its half dozen stations i asked myself is the city in conspiracy with the mob (sighs) so people were flying overhead of the greenwood district and throwing turpent flying uh, burning turpentine balls down onto the buildings so they'd all catch on fire and burn so it was like a complete it was a blitz onslaught yes a blitz completely overpowered by the mob many greenwood district residents flee the city 
Troops from another Oklahoma National Guard station arrive on the scene around 9.15 a.m. on June 1st as backup. At this point, roughly 4,000 black people have been detained by the local National Guard. 4,000. The National Guard declares martial law around 11.50 a.m. and try to regain order. Between 12 and 1 p.m., the violence finally stops, but the fires rage on for Two full days. The rounding up and detention of black citizens in the city continues throughout. (sighs) When martial law is finally withdrawn on Friday, uh, June 4th, 1921, there are still about 6,000 black people being held in detention. Some are held for as long as eight days. Wow. When all is said and done, more than 35 blocks in the Greenwood District are destroyed. Mm. 35 blocks. Oh, my God. 191 businesses, 1,200 homes, churches, and schools. Mm. are burned to the ground. An estimated 10,000 black citizens are left homeless. It's hard to say exactly how many people died because many media outlets at the time would change their counts and release conflicting information. But the estimates today range anywhere from 55 people to 300. Wow. And there is a... This is really amazing. In that Washington Post article, they talk about how there's a potter's field that's out in the back of the cemetery in Tulsa. Mm -hmm. They believe that they dumped a bunch of bodies out there that just they just buried them (gasps) in a mass grave. And that's why they don't know the number. Governor James B.A. Robertson calls for a grand jury to investigate how the massacre came about. The investigation starts on June 8th, 1921 and includes both black and white witnesses, as well as the sheriff and other city officials. They're all questioned about the events over a 12-day period. But the jury is made up of all white people. Jesus. And they... And they find the massacre was incited by the black citizens. Of course they do. While they do acknowledge the law enforcement failed to prevent the violence, that's ultimately a worthless concession. The court reviews 27 different cases associated with the massacre and 85 people are indicted. But when all the legal proceedings are done, not one person is convicted for the murders or the damages in the Greenwood District. When questioned about what happened, Tulsa police, firefighters, National Guard and other officials try to say they did everything they could to stop the violence. But witness accounts say otherwise. Mm. There are mentions of the city preventing the Red Cross from coming in to provide medical aid and firefighters either letting the fires rage or being persuaded by the white mob to stand down. There are even reports, which is not a hard thing to be persuaded by a fucking angry mob. Seriously, There are even reports that local police had deputized some of the mob giving them weapons Mm. and the authority to attack or detain black residents. Hope Franklin, the son of Buck Franklin from the man who wrote his eyewitness he says the term riot is contentious because it assumes that black people started the violence as they were accused of doing by whites we increasingly use the term massacre or I use the European term pogrom It's a long road to rebuild the Greenwood District. And even though it's eventually rebuilt, of course, it's never the same. Today, gentrification threatens to bury the history of the massacre and of the once thriving, prosperous black community. Um, Historians and activists have been fighting to have the story of the Greenwood Massacre taught in Oklahoma classrooms for years. But since the success and popularity of HBO's series Watchmen starring America's Queen Regina King... I, I put that in. <laughs> and their incredibly impactful use of the events of the Greenwood Massacre, that has 
has apparently pushed the argument over the edge. <gasps> and this month, February of 2020, <gasps> Oklahoma, and this was what that Root article was all about. Yeah. Root article written by Jay Connor. Oklahoma's Department of Education has announced that will be it will be officially adding the story of the Greenwood Massacre to public school curriculums by this fall just in time for its 100th anniversary in 2021. Holy shit. And that is the, up until very recently, kind of untold history of Tulsa's Greenwood Massacre. And if anyone's interested, the writer for the article for The Root, Jay Connor, he also produces and co-hosts a podcast called The Extraordinary Negroes. So you might want to give that a listen. Amazing. Because it's a, yeah. And also just I don't know any of yeah. this shit. I had to look up the details of what the Jim Crow laws were. Right. There's so especially like in the 80s, we were not educated in any, I think, effective way yeah. about about black history. It's as if it's our choice whether or not we want to know stuff like this. Yeah, totally. And so I, that's also not to overdo it, but the importance of diversity in especially in goddamn show business and in Hollywood is because these stories are great, important, vital American stories that should be told. And the people that made the Watchmen prove that point. Yeah. Like what an amazing use of fact and horrible. Uh-huh. Like there's plenty of horrible stories in our history. Yeah. But they don't have to just remain taboo, unspoken. Don't talk about that because it actually helps people learn how to do better right. when we know how fucking bad it actually was. Yeah. Not covering over, not rationalizing, not saying it was some, it was their own fault. It was uh-huh. someone else's fault. It was a riot. They should whatever. have done that. Yeah, yeah. It's none of that stuff, but actually going, how do we make it so there's less angry mobs in general? Yeah. Still to this day. To this goddamn minute. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> no, great. That was incredible. <laughs> I'm, spe- I'm like speechless. That was that was hardcore. Well, it's fucking heavy. Important. It's heavy and scary to talk about. Totally. It's scary to talk about. Yeah. And it's important. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Let's do some fucking hurry. Yeah. There we go. Do we do ours first or these uh, these listeners first? I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I guess we do listeners. Then okay. We can, then we can figure out what we want to do. Good do you idea. know what yours is? I do. So me, me too, of course. Oh my- <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you go first. This one is my fucking hooray. Humanity doesn't always suck. This is from the Fan Cult Forum. Okay. By Katie E. She wrote, Hi, MFM crew. My fucking hooray this week. I was driving home from work on an unseasonably warm winter day behind the same car for a good bit. There was an obvious squirmy kid in the back seat with the window down waving his hand out of the window I could tell he was turning around and waving at me sometimes so I waved back in parentheses I'm not a total crank <laughs> but the best part as I followed this car through a pedestrian heavy road was seeing all of the folks walking who also decided to wave back to this kid Aww. he had a great big smile on his face with every wave and it was obvious he was soaking in the joy that came from waving to people and unexpectedly giving a getting a wave back and it was an unexpected bit of joy for me in the midst of a shitty fucking week so fucking hooray for the happy waving kid and all the people who wave back to him humanity doesn't always suck sometimes it returns the pure kind gestures in ways that we need 
That's so beautiful. Isn't that good? It's the little things. It can be. I love that. I know. Okay, this one's from Instagram, katiegirl129. My fucking array is that I finally got off my pain medication after being on them for 15 years. Whoa. I have a jaw disorder and have undergone multiple surgeries and they never worked. March of 2019, I had another jaw surgery with a new surgeon and I'm without pain for the first time in my life. Whoa. Yeah. That's amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. Every day must be a gut. She's <sighs> the waving kid every day. That's the, that's from the waving kid. Holy shit. Congratulations, everybody. <laughs> oh, listen to this one. This is also from the fan. I have the fan cult forum one. Okay. This is from Sherry. So tonight I went alone to see Chris Fairbanks in Milwaukee. Yay. I tried to talk myself out of it a few times. I hear that. Uh But I drove an hour in the dark to a place I'd never been. I felt weird and awkward at first, but very soon I met some murderinos and a few other solo attendees and all the awkwardness quickly went away. Another solo person, Jay, sat next to me and told me several times that she was proud of me for coming. And she was right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm proud of myself for getting out of my comfort zone and doing something I wanted to do even though I had to do it alone. It was so fun. And I got up the courage to actually meet Chris after the show. Such a sweetheart. So fucking hooray to me. Oh my god, I love it. I love the idea that there is a secret network of murderinos who go to things and other people and listeners know that they can go by themselves. They can practice that. Or if they see someone alone, they can be like, this is scary for them too. I'm acknowledging that. And I'm going to approach them, even if they're not murderinos. It's like, yeah, it's just like we all know how scary it is, it's how scary life is, how scary being alone can be. Yeah. And you can actually do something about that. Yeah. Just wear a little wear a little pin. <laughs> make yourself known. That's right. You got friends waiting for you. Um, here's one from ACG underscore MPLS. <laughs> I don't know. She's from Minneapolis. Uh, My fucking array is that this Saturday, the day after my birthday, my miracle baby is due. (gasps) We tried for three and a half years to conceive and were convinced we couldn't. And now here we are. Wow. I know. A baby. A baby. In five years, that baby's going to be waving out the window. That's right. Bringing joy to others. That's right. Babies. Babies are miracles. There they are. I really believe in the in the good work babies do. It's watching Nora grow up Aww. and all the goodness she brought to our ho- horrible falling apart family. Yeah, she really made it work. Uh, keep us posted on the miracle baby. Yeah, we want to see pictures of that baby. Yeah. Okay, this one is from um, Chantel. It's C H apostrophe n-t-e-l okay it's brand new way to spell it um and the subject line is guys tim hortons has created a kit kat everything menu what if you didn't know tim hortons is a can is canada's number one coffee slash donut chain restaurant oh yeah it's like your dunkin donuts but better sorry not sorry anyway (laughs) they've introduced a kit kat everything menu just one more reason for more live shows in canada (laughs) (laughs) what is that we have to look up pictures of that Kit Kat everything. Kit Kat everything? Maybe it's like a Kit Kat donut. 
It's That's hot, all I got. Hot chocolate. Hot chocolate. Hoppy. Stephen. Kit Kat chocolate. Looking it up. Let me read one more. While you read that, Stephen's going to look it up. So right after we can look at pictures of the Kit Kat everything menu. I'm telling him to do it passive aggressively by saying that's what's going to happen. This is from Annalisa Denny. And she says, my fucking hooray is I have been dealing with depression since last year after disclosing my sexual abuse to both my boyfriend and my family. It has been really hard and I was suicidal for a while, but I have had a really good week. I know that my depression hasn't just gone away, but my God, does it feel good to just be genuinely happy, even if it's only for a couple of days. Yep. Amen. Keep it up. That's right. Days turn into weeks. That's right. Yep. Steven, Kit Kats. This is the main picture that I think that they've been promoting. So it's like a donut. <laughs> and, a brownie? And like a brownie situation. Wow. <laughs> Kit Kat everything. Wow. Is Canada starting to discover how delicious their, na- Own their native are? candy is? Um, what's your fucking hooray? Oh, I, um, <laughs> my friend asked me to do a set. I just tried to start doing sets again. We've been kind of busy and crazy. It's been a, a little weird lately. So mm-hmm. I was like, mm, I'm going to, you know, like I, I, I'm always hedging. I love doing it. It makes me feel better when I do it, but I just don't make the time to write. So then when I do it, I just feel like I'm just doing the same stuff over and over and I yeah. hate it. Um, my friend asked me to do his show. I was like, eh, I, I'm probably not going to, I'll say yes, but yeah. then I won't do it or whatever. And then whatever he said back to me, I can't remember. I just went fine. I'll do it. And then I was kind of like, instead of doing the thing I always do, which is project forward about how bad it's going to be uh-huh. and how, like how I'm going to fail. I was like, can you just just write five new jokes. And so I ended up writing, I think, two. Mm-hmm. So it was basically baby steps progress. But the two new jokes I wrote killed. And nice. then I was like, this is, I just need to keep doing yeah. this. It, you know, I'm not going to be able to do it every single night. And yeah. the hilarious thing was I kept stumbling over just saying words yeah. where at some point I was like, have I talked out loud today? <laughs> like, <laughs> I should have warmed up a little bit before uh-huh. I walked out here. I've been there. But it didn't. Normally what happens is if I stumble over a word, I will immediately make eye contact with a dude who has a bad look on his yeah. face. And then I'm like, I'm eating it. They hate me. Yeah. This is terrible. And instead I was just like, yeah, I just didn't say it right. Like yeah. here. I'm here. This is the idea of what okay. I'm saying. And it all worked out great. And I saw a bunch of people that I really like. Like, Deb DiGiovanni is one of the funniest stand-up comedians doing it right now. Nice. And she was on that show. I just got to hang out in the green room with a bunch of people I really like. Dan Soder was in town from New York. Nice. He's a genius comic, really talented. Josh Adam Myers was there, who has the 500 podcast. Yeah. He's really hilarious and uh, yeah, it was worthwhile. It was just like a super fun hang. So I it just it. the whole thing made me. I was just like, "How about just stay neutral? Yeah. You don't. You, it doesn't have to be the greatest night of your life, <laughs> and it also isn't going to suck like the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Yeah, just go have new experiences and like give it a whirl. I feel like I've said that a hundred times. I mean, but. it's hard to it's hard to c- continue to be positive. It's well, it's hard to practice getting stepping out of my anxiety and just going, okay, you can think that. Now go see what actually the truth is. That's my practice that I'm proud to be practicing more because I know it conceptually, but then like that person said, like, it's so easy to talk yourself out out of 
actually trying. Well, that's the voice that you're used to listening to and that you're, you've been listening to for so long. And it, what if they're not right? And I know. You're just, I mean, dude, I totally get that. Yeah. Um, mine is that I've been having a lot of anxiety as well. I'm like kind of in between therapists and stuff. And our schedule has been fucking crazy with this great like Christmas break where we took some time off and it's starting to ramp up again. Yeah. To a way that's very stressful. Um, and I, my dad was like, are you free for lunch this week? And I was like, I'm not. I was so sorry. I hate my schedule. So busy. And I was like complaining about it to him. And he texted me back and said, embrace your schedule as you would a blessing. Oh, Marty. Like, Shit. <laughs> yeah. I'm blessed that I have stuff going on and that my life has important meetings and important research that needs to be done. And, you know, Important shit. Show, take a picture of that and then show it to Office Georgia from 1998. Yeah. She'll be stoked. She will be. And it's hard. Look, we both lose perspective. Saying this out loud on this podcast yeah. makes us look like assholes. Totally. But within any any system you're in, as great as things could be, yeah. the day-to-day is hard. And we actually work you know, super fucking hard. Yeah, we just we do. Really do. Yeah. It's, but it's also fun. Yeah. But yeah. And it's, there's a fucking amazing payoff at the end of the day with it. It's very cool. Yeah. I'm, I've, that could actually also be my fucking raise. Just the stuff we've been doing recently, the development stuff and like mm-hmm. Bridger's show and, and the upcoming other shows we get to announce soon. It's really starting to feel like there's this movement. Yeah. And it's so exciting because, We've been working and kind of fighting for so long. Yeah. And now it's actually like kind of and un- results are being things are rolling out unfurled. And there's a reason for it all. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's true. It's kind of like how hard the book was. And then the book came out. And we're like, oh, yeah, this was so <laughs> worth it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Perspective. I love that Marty's the one that did Marty, it. Though. That is such a like, uh, oh, scam likely from San Rafael. I'm not answering. Oh, that's right by Petaluma. Um, yeah. Embrace your schedule as you would a blessing. As you would a blessing. Yeah. We're fucking super lucky. Mazel tov. Hey, Shabbat Shalom, baby. Tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. You're the fucking best. You're a blessing. You're a blessing. We appreciate you. Thanks for l- letting us say really ungrateful things so we can get to the gratitude part yeah. afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your understanding means a lot to us. Thanks, Stephen Ray Morris, for audio engineering all our bullshit. Stephen has to sit through so, so much, much bullshit. <laughs> you, I mean, true. And all he gets to do is read a Kit Kat menu at the end of the day. <laughs> Poor thing. <laughs> Steven, get us that Kit Kat information. Yeah. Quick like. Hey, what's going on on the Purcast this week? Ooh, we have Allison Tolman, who is the star of season one of Fargo. Yes. And Emergence. And Emergence. Yes. And her cat Bud had all of his teeth removed, Aww. and he's a big sweetheart. <laughs> and you can just hear him on the podcast be like, hey, like breathing. <laughs> and it's really cute. And she's hilarious. Allison Tolman, I think, is one of the most compelling actors in the game right now, they gave her her own procedural. Yeah. That's how amazing she was. If you didn't see, was it season one or season two of Fargo? I think it was season one with Billy Bob Thornton, right? Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think that was season one. No, it was with um, Billy Bob Thornton was in the movie. It was oh. with what's his cute no, no, British Bob, face. You're Mar- right, Martin, but Martin Freeman, but um, Billy Bob Thornton was also he was the villain. No, no, Ethan, Ethan, Huck? <laughs> no, no, Ethan. Oh, that was season three when he was his own twin. Or was it three <laughs> what or two? Um, you're talking about Ewan McGregor. Yeah, he was a twin. He played his own brother. Right. That was not her season. So it is season one. Sorry, season. Obviously, Stephen knows this because he had a He's conversation with her. Yes, it was season one. We're confirming. Co- Colin Hanks too is also Colin Hanks. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, and they fall in love, yeah, and yeah. it's so good. Yeah. Three cheers for Allison Tolman. And if you haven't watched Emergence, it's really good. Cool. Yeah. All right. Stay sexy and don't get murdered. Goodbye, Goodbye. Elvis. Do you want a cookie?